If you would turn with me in a Bible to Exodus chapter 15. We've been going through the book of Exodus uh, under the heading from bondage to belonging because that's the journey that God leads the Israelites on in this book out of their uh, slavery and bondage in the land of Egypt. Uh, But then he doesn't lead them just out and leave them. He leads them out so that they might know what it means to belong to him. And that's uh, in a greater way what Jesus Christ came to do, to deliver us from bondage to sin and death and the devil and to bring us uh, into a place where we know what it means to belong to God and to have his promises for us. This morning we're reading chapter 15, verse 22 to the end of the chapter and then chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. Uh, Both of these stories are about God quenching his people's thirst. Uh, So let's read chapter 15, beginning at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I wonder if you have ever gone through any kind of wilderness training. Uh, The week before I went off to college, I joined 10 other incoming freshmen and two Uh, college student leaders on a four-day hiking trip in northwestern Connecticut on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, We climbed Bear Mountain. We camped out in tents or under tarps along the way. At the beginning of the trip, none of us had ever met each other. And the goal of the trip was that by going into the woods for a few days and dealing with the associated challenges, we would somehow bond and develop new friendships as we began our time in college. Now, as a form of wilderness training, what I did was very tame. Uh, The hardest thing I endured was a day of hiking in the pouring rain and a night of trying to sleep in a soaking wet sleeping bag because I didn't know how to keep a sleeping bag dry. 
the next day we got back to campus, I took a long hot shower, I moved into my dorm room, and I haven't done much backpacking since then. <laughs> now many people, in fact, including some of you, uh, have endured far more difficult and extended forms of wilderness training. Uh, there are through hikers who have hiked the entire Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine uh, over the course of five to seven months. Uh, those of you who've served in the military, you've all been through boot camp. Uh, not just a few days, but several weeks. Uh, some Native American tribes would send out their young men into the wilderness as a rite of passage. They would have to survive on their own uh, for perhaps a few or several days before returning to the tribe. So many human cultures and institutions have seen some value in going off into the wilderness and being pushed to your limit in order to grow and learn and mature. And in a sense, that's what God is doing with the Israelites in this section of Exodus. He's leading them into the wilderness as a time to train them. Uh, now, so far in the story, we've seen how God rescued the people from their slavery in Egypt how he graciously intervened on their behalf. Uh, and then last week, we, last couple weeks, we saw how God brought them through the Red Sea uh, and they sang a song of victory on the other side. Uh, so, so far, you could say, Exodus has been a story of God's salvation, of his saving grace. Uh, but the next three chapters, uh, through the end of chapter 18, focus uh, on God's sustaining grace. He's already saved the people the Egyptian army is dealt with once and for all at the Red Sea. Egypt is now in the rearview mirror, but an uncharted wilderness is in front of them. And in the wilderness, these people face all kinds of new challenges. Thirst, hunger, enemy attacks, internal disputes. They are stretched to their limits. They often feel that they are being stretched beyond what they can bear. But through it all, God is teaching and training them. So for the next three weeks, we'll be going through this wilderness section of Exodus on the way to Mount Sinai. And today we're looking at two episodes uh, that deal with God providing for quenching his people's thirst, providing water when they're thirsty. Uh, so I want to look at these two episodes uh, together. Uh, next week we'll look at chapter 16, which is in the middle, uh, about how God provides food for their hunger. Uh, but I want to look at these two episodes under two headings. First, the first story is about when God tests us in the wilderness. The second story is about when we test God in the wilderness. So first, uh, when God tests us, uh, this story at the end of chapter 15. And if you look in the middle of that uh, section in verse 25, it says, There he tested them. There the Lord what the Lord was doing in this episode was testing his people. Uh, in other words, he was pushing them to their human limits, but teaching them that they could always rely on him. Uh, so uh, what do we see in this first story when God is testing his people? Uh, well, uh, verse 22, they go from the Red Sea, where they had more water than they could possibly handle, and the water almost overwhelmed them, to having no water at all and being desperate for water. Uh, so uh, most likely by the end of these three days with no water, they had probably used up whatever supplies of water they had brought with them. They had ways of storing water back then, uh, and they were probably starting to get desperate. Uh, so when they first arrived at Mara, there was some water there, and they were probably ecstatic. Oh, look, there's an oasis, and it actually has water there. It's not just a mirage. But then they drink it, and it's bitter. 
Uh, perhaps it was sometimes springs of water in the desert become bitter because of dissolved minerals that uh, make the water nearly undrinkable, uh, just so bitter that it's, it's so unpleasant to drink. So verse 24, the people turn to Moses and they ask a perfectly reasonable question. What shall we drink? Now, if that's all that verse 24 said, uh, they would have done nothing wrong. But notice how verse 24 begins. Verse 24 begins, the people grumbled against Moses. So it wasn't the content of their question that was the problem. It was the tone and the attitude behind it. In just a few days, they had gone from praising God and thanking God on the eastern shore of the Red Sea to grumbling against Moses, whom God had given to lead them. Now, grumbling becomes a recurring theme in the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. <coughs> uh, we'll see it again several times next week in chapter 16, so we'll delve into it more then. Uh, but we won't dwell on the people's grumbling now because the story doesn't. Uh, the story just moves on. And in verse 25, Moses cried to the Lord. Now, again, we've heard that phrase before. The people cried to the Lord when they were uh, groaning under their slavery in Egypt and God answered their prayer. Moses cried to the Lord when they were facing the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was coming behind them and he didn't know what to do. So crying out to the Lord in our distress is always a good thing. And God hears and answers. And here God answers right away. Verse 25, the Lord showed him a log. Uh, that word can also be translated a tree. Uh, and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Now, the story doesn't explain why God told Moses to throw a tree or a log into the water rather than some other means. People have come up with various ideas, but they're really only speculations because the text doesn't give an explanation. So what's clear from the verse is that God made the bitter water sweet. And if you think about the story of Exodus, that's what God had done for the people. He had taken them from the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 14, it uses the same word to describe their life in Egypt. The Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter. So when they first tasted that bitter water, perhaps they were reminded of the bitterness of their past experience. But God had brought them out of that bitter place of being in bondage and he had set them free. He had brought them, he was leading them toward the sweetness of his presence. And that sweet water was just a little taste of what, of the future that God had for them. So when they tasted that sweet water, they could be reminded of the sweetness of God's promises and God's presence. Uh, and now in verse 26, God goes on to give them a promise. Uh, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord and do that which is right, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Uh, so the basic point is if you listen and carefully obey all that I tell you to do, uh, you won't experience the kind of plagues that came upon the land of Egypt uh, as a judgment. Now, some people have quoted verse 26 uh, and interpret it as a promise that believers who trust and obey God should never get sick or will always be healed uh, in this life if they ever do get sick. Uh, but that's not what verse 26 says. Uh, the Bible does not say that people who faithfully trust and follow God will never get sick. And in fact, if you read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul mentions several times when he and his partners in ministry did get sick. 
So, a few examples. Galatians 4.13, Paul says, It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Or Philippians 2.27, Paul mentions that his friend Epaphroditus was ill, near to death. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul mentioned that uh, Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, was having stomach problems and frequent ailments. And Paul told him, Paul didn't say, pray and ask God to heal you. Paul said, you need to change your diet because... Uh, don't, don't just drink water, because sometimes the water back then was contaminated. Use a little wine. It was very watered down, but it would help to remove uh, some of the, uh, the impurities in the water. Paul basically says, change your diet uh, so that you can experience improved health. Uh, but Paul never gives any indication that these routine sicknesses or frequent ailments came because of any unfaithfulness or disobedience on the people's part. Uh, so if you, hear, if you encounter people who say, that faithful Christians should never get sick, or perhaps they tell you that they haven't been sick for years and years because God always heals them, and that's a promise, and every believer can claim it, and you just have to claim it. They're dishonoring the Apostle Paul, who acknowledged that he got sick, and many other faithful believers who have endured and persevered in their faith in Christ despite many sicknesses and weaknesses. So if people come along and quote verses like, uh, verse 26, out of context, or make you feel ashamed because perhaps you're, you've been sick or struggling with weakness or illness for a while, remind them of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes a thorn in his flesh. He doesn't describe what it was, so it perhaps was a physical ailment or some kind of uh, unpleasant experience, and it wouldn't go away no matter how much Paul prayed about it. But at the end, Paul said, God's grace, my grace is sufficient for you. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So that's a promise of God we can hold on to. Uh, now you might say, what is verse 26 saying if it's not a promise that every believer should always be healed? Well, first of all, uh, verse 26 is a word spoken to the people of Israel as a group. Uh, if they, as a group, would listen and obey all that God told them to do. Now, that's a big if, which because the people never completely fulfilled that, right? They never actually obeyed everything that God told them to do. So they didn't even live up to the condition, but, the condi but if they had, then God promised not to send plagues on their community like he had sent plagues on the land of Egypt. Instead, their community would be characterized by health and wholeness and flourishing, not just physically, but also spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. Now, as a general principle, this is a true principle. Okay? If we as a church listen carefully to what God says in the Bible and take it seriously and actually seek to not just listen and hear and have ideas in our heads, but to live it out and to obey it in our daily lives and in our relationships with each other, then our church will become increasingly healthy, right? Not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally, right? A healthy church is characterized by listening and obeying God's word. And even on an individual level, I can think of many situations where people have been crippled by anxiety or despair, and by holding on to God's word and trusting in God's promises, uh, they found new energy and hope, right? It's not a, this is not a, there's not a magic trick uh, to wave away unpleasant illnesses or experiences, but there is a valuable principle that God's ways are good. And when we trust and seek to follow him, uh, that 
uh, that's in line with how he made things to work well. Uh, now, verse 27 brings this section to, the clo to a close, and it tells us that right after Mara, the place of bitter water that became sweet, they came to Elam. And Elam, in contrast to Mara, sounds like a resort. Twelve, uh, what is it? Plenty of water, plenty of shade. Twelve springs of water and 70 palm trees. Uh, and they encamp there by the water. So what do we learn from this first episode when God tests his people? Well, we learn that sometimes God stretches us to our human limits. Like he stretched the people by bringing them into the wilderness where they had no water and then bitter water. But God also refreshes us like he did when he brought them to Elam with, his, with abundant grace. And that's uh, the principle that the Apostle Paul uh, draws from this passage. We read it, uh, heard it earlier from 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's what we see in this passage with God and the Israelites. He's training them and stretching them, but he's also reminding them that they can always rely on him. So that's what we see in this first episode where God quenches his people's thirst. But there's also another episode in chapter 17. And uh, the emphasis of this episode is sort of the reverse. It's about when we test God in the wilderness. So look at chapter 17. Uh, twice in this section, it refers to the people testing the Lord. So verse 2, Moses said to the people, why do you test the Lord? And verse 7 says, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So you might say, well, what does it mean that these people tested the Lord? Uh, verse, look, look down at verse 2. Uh, it says, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now that word quarrel uh, has legal overtones. Uh, so it could also be translated, they protested against Moses or they... Uh, brought a charge or lodged an official complaint against Moses. It's as if they wanted to sort of bring him into court and say, you're guilty. Uh, it describes sort of an angry, hostile posture. And also notice the people didn't just ask Moses like they did in chapter 15, what shall we drink? They said, give us water to drink. They made a demand. In other words, they were saying, you owe us. So give us what you owe us or else. We're done with you. And then in verse 3, they went on to accuse Moses of acting with bad motives. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 4, you can see Moses was desperate. He doesn't just ask the Lord for help. He cries out in frustration, what shall I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Moses is probably not overstating the reality. Right? They're bringing an accusation against him. They are ready to put him to death by stoning. This situation is going downhill fast. And verse 7 shows us that the people didn't just have a beef with Moses. They ultimately had a beef with God. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now think about that question in light of all that the Israelites had recently experienced. They had seen the plagues that God had sent upon the land of Egypt and how he had mercifully spared them from those plagues. When they left Egypt, they hadn't left empty-handed, but God had provided 
uh, generously supplied them with gold and jewelry and clothing as well as food. God himself had led them through the wilderness in a visible pillar of cloud and fire. When they had only bitter water at Marah, God had made the water sweet. They had every reason to believe that the Lord was among them. They had literally seen multiple miracles right in front of their eyes in the last month. And yet they say, is the Lord among us or not? Right? If a child walks into the kitchen and the parent's cooking dinner and the child says, are we going to have any food tonight or are we just going to starve? <laughs> it's not an honest question. It's an insult. Or if a spectator sitting on the sides of a marathon yells out to the front runner who's halfway through the marathon, so are you going to race today? <laughs> That's an insult. This is exactly the, like the question the people are asking the Lord. Lord, are you among us or not? And God's given them every reason to know that he's with them, that he's among them, that that's the entire purpose for which he saved them is to bring them into his presence. So how will God respond when his people test him? When they not only want to kill the leader who he has appointed, but they want to accuse God of not even, of abandoning them and not even being with them. We might think that God will yell at them or punish them or leave them to themselves, any of which would be an entirely justified response. Later on in the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers describes the people's journey through the wilderness after Mount Sinai, and the people continue to test God over and over, and he does rebuke them, and he does at times punish them, though he never wipes them all out. But here, God's response is different. God does not punish them. Instead, God gives them mercy that they don't deserve. Look down at verses 5 and 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So all this is happening publicly. It's in the sight of the elders of Israel. It's not something where God takes Moses aside and has a private conversation with Moses that nobody else hears. What God is doing here is meant to be known and seen by everyone. Uh, second, uh, the second thing you might notice is that this is a reversal of what God did in the land of Egypt. So if you remember in the first plague, when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, the first plague, God told Moses, go down to the Nile River and raise your staff and stretch it over the river, and I'll turn the water into blood. In other words, I will make the water of Egypt undrinkable as a, as a sign that the people are putting, uh, that the Egyptians were worshiping the wrong things. They, in fact, they worshiped the Nile River, and God turned the, turned the water, made it undrinkable. But here, God does the reverse, right? The people have no water, and he promises to provide water. Moses strikes the rock with his staff. The water comes out. The people drink. So God meets his people's need. He quenches their thirst. But notice, here's 
the thing about this passage. God meets his people's need in a very strange way. Did you notice verse 6? Behold, and that word means look, pay attention, this is important. I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Now that is a very strange thing to say. Imagine if I invited one of you to come up front, and I give you a big stick, and I say, I'm going to stand on this table. Whack the table. I might as well say, whack me. That's what's going on when God says to the Israelites, I'll stand on the rock and whack the rock with your big staff. God identifies himself with the rock that he tells Moses to strike. Not only here, where God says, I'll stand before you on the rock, but later on in the Bible, at the end of his life, Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 15, calls God the rock, and David will call God my rock, and the Apostle Paul uh, says the rock was Christ. The rock that the people of Israel drank from in the wilderness was Jesus Christ. You see, Here's the thing. The people of Israel had tested God. They had insulted God. They accused Moses of being against them, and they wanted to get rid of him. They accused God of having abandoned them, and they were ready to abandon him. And God would have been entirely justified in punishing them and letting them go their own foolish way and paying them back what they deserved. But instead, God said, I will take the punishment that you deserve. I will be struck so that you can drink and your thirst can be quenched. And that's why Jesus Christ came into the world. Jesus Christ didn't come as a debt collector. He didn't come to make us pay what we owed God. He didn't come to strike us down as we deserve. He came because he was willing to be struck down so that we, so that our thirst might be forever quenched. Perhaps you question, like the Israelites did, is the Lord among us or not? Perhaps you feel like you have been stretched to your limits or even beyond what you can bear, but look at the rock who was struck so that your thirst might be quenched. The Gospel of John, verses, chapter 19, verse 34, says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, his body was literally pierced with a spear. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He was struck on our behalf. But earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus says these words. He spoke to a thirsty woman sitting at a well on a hot day, and he said, everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty forever. And in John 7:37, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And in Revelation 21, verse 6, Jesus says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You see, that's what Jesus offers. The water that will quench the thirst of our souls now and forever. And he offers that to us because he took the punishment that we deserved on our behalf. Are you thirsty 
come to Jesus and drink of his living water. Let's pray. God, we thank you for how you walked with the people of Israel through every step of the wilderness. We thank you for how you tested them, how you were training them, how you were teaching them to rely on you even when they were stretched to their limits. And we pray that you would help us to learn that same lesson and take it to heart. But we thank you also, Lord Jesus, for the mercy that we see, that when your people tested you and were ready to accuse you and get rid of you and get rid of Moses, that you showed your amazing mercy and provision to them. Lord, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We pray that we would come to him and receive his mercy and drink of his living water and be satisfied. And we pray that you, we would trust that you will sustain us. You who have saved us will sustain us through every step of our earthly life uh, until we come uh, to find our eternal home with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.